If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please find our gospel passage that Keith just read to us, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. Luke 24. And I want you to notice the first thing that we're told in this passage. It says, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. Now, pay attention to the timing. The first day of the week at early dawn. It's a detail that all four of the gospel writers include, that this happened at dawn on the first day of the week. So a bunch of us have just come here from being at the Cook's house in Dayton because we did that. The church has been doing this for, for ages now. We recognize that it's important that the way the events occurred, they occurred at dawn. You see, at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, on the sixth day of the week, on Friday, God created humankind. So our stained glass, way over there on the left is day one of creation, where over here on the right is day two, in the middle over there is day three, in the middle over here is day four, on the end of this over here is day five, but right over here is day six, the sixth day. And if you look close in the stained glass, you can see a man and a woman embrace. On the sixth day, on Friday of creation, God created humans. And he created us in his image. And then does anybody know what God said at the end of the sixth day in Genesis chapter 1 in creation? Does anybody know the three words? It's finished. It's finished. And then we're told that on the seventh day which would have been Saturday, God did what? He rested. Okay, so get this. On the sixth day, on Friday, God finished his work. He said it's finished. Then on the seventh day, Saturday, he rested. In John's gospel, it is very clear that Jesus hung on the cross on the sixth day. On Friday. And 2,000 years ago, at the end of that work, Jesus Christ said, What? It is finished. He declared the same thing on the same day that God the Father declared at the dawn of creation. On that dark Friday, 2,000 years ago, the Son says, It is finished. It's done. And then on the seventh day, what did the Son do? He rested. Holy Saturday. Just like God rested after creating all things, so on the seventh day, 2,000 years ago, outside Jerusalem, after the crucifixion, God incarnate rests in the tomb. The work is complete. And so as the Father finished the work of creation, the Son finished the work of redemption. And then we read in Luke chapter 24, verse 1, on the first day of the new week, at early dawn, these these women, they went to the tomb, and what did they discover? It was empty. Jesus Christ had finished the work. New creation has begun. Now, that is what all four gospel writers say is the point of Easter. The point of Easter, the first and most important thing is the new day. Not now you can go to heaven. 
Not now your sins can be forgiven. All that is true. But all of the gospel writers say nothing about heaven and nothing about sins being forgiven. They all say when they're looking at the resurrection, they all say the same thing. Sins forgiven, amazing. I'm not trying to downplay that. But they all say the first, the most, the critical point of resurrection is that the new day has come. That Jesus has risen from the dead as the beginning of the new world. In in the same way that God in his cataclysmic power lit the big bang and the entire universe came into existence, that same amount of power came among us on Good Friday and brought about new creation, opened the door into new life. This world, our world, this world we live in, it is full of corruption and decay. It's got too much violence and sorrow and sin and shame. But the one and only true God, the creator of the world, he loves this world. So he took on flesh, and not only did he take on our flesh, he took into himself all of our corruption and all of our decay and all of our violence and shameful ways, the evil, the chaos, the betrayal, the sorrow and agony and death itself. He took it into himself, and just like at the end of your worst days, when you've gone through the worst things of your life and you can't take another thing and you just pass out and you just go to sleep. He took yours into him and he took mine and he took all of the sorrows that have ever experienced out of billions and billions of people and you know what it did to him. It killed him. It laid him flat. He took it all in and he drew it into himself. That's what Good Friday is about. When Jesus died on the cross, something happened that made the world a different place. By six o'clock on the evening of the first Good Friday, the world had changed. A revolution had begun and, and nobody knew it. They just thought a tragic thing had occurred. The first sign that a door had opened that had previously been shut, the first sign that new creation had actually come among us, the first sign of the difference in the universe came three days later when something happened that doesn't happen. A person rose from the dead. When Jesus was raised from the dead, this was the first fruit of the victory won on the cross. Even though this accomplishment that God had done, it was unrecognized and it was unimagined for three days. And even then it took a lot longer for it to take effect. From 6 p.m. on the first Good Friday, the darkest and the strongest power in the world, the power of death itself, was defeated. It really, really was. And a new power, a different sort of power from all the other powers was now unleashed into the world. The power of the God of creation giving his love. And in Jesus' crucifixion, the jailer was overpowered. Think of Paul and Silas. 
In Jesus' crucifixion, the doors were open to us. And so Jesus' resurrected body, it's the prototype of this whole world being renewed from top to bottom so that everything like Jesus' resurrected body, everything that is pure and lovely and beautiful and noble and wise will, in the words of one of our great poets, shine out like shook foil. That's the first and most important point about Easter. Jesus is risen. God's new world has begun. It's not just that Jesus is alive. My mother's alive, right? My mother who passed away two years ago, she's alive, right? The miracle is the resurrected body. The miracle is that the first fruits of new creation has come into this world. Now, the second point about Easter is that everybody's invited to join this new world. All people everywhere are invited to come in and join the party. Be a part of the kingdom where death is dead. Now, how do we do that? How do we join the new creation party? Well, we join it by answering Jesus' faithfulness with a faithfulness to Jesus. And that can be very hard. I mean, think back to our gospel reading. Once the women saw the empty tomb and were told by the angels that Jesus had risen and were told to remember all the stuff he had told them. And then it clicked with the women and they got it. And so they rushed back to the rest of Jesus' followers and they told them, Christ is risen. New creation has begun. And how do, how do the disciples respond to the women? What? Uh, technically, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. <laughs> that word idle tale, it's, it's a technical word in the Greek language that's used as a medical term to describe the delirious talk of a person who's lost their mind. I'm, I'm for real, because that's what I would think about Nick if he came and told me, right? Karen is back, right? If he said to me, Karen's here, I would think, there's a technical term for this kind of language. It's just crazy talk. You girls are out of your minds with your grief. You're not making sense. Everybody knows that dead people stay dead. And listen, it's just as hard for our children to believe that as it was for these disciples to believe that. And it's just as hard for many of us to believe that. But the women believed it. And soon enough, the disciples believed it too. And very soon after that, many thousands more believed it. And now more people in the world believe that than people believe any other religion. So my question for you is, do you believe it? Do you believe that there was this man who was a Jew, and he believed that in his own life and death, God's purposes to rescue the world were coming to fulfillment, and so he died by taking the weight of all the evil that has ever been done to you, all the evil that you've ever done, all the evil that's ever been done in this world. He drew it all into one point in time, and he took it upon himself, and it killed him, and then he rose from the dead victorious, and in doing that, he broke the power of death and evil. And he launched into this world God's rescue project. And he invites you and me and the whole world to join in with it and to find it for ourselves. That's the news that's good. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? Christian faith. Christian faith is what happens 
when you hear the story of Jesus and rising up in you is a inclination, a response to give him your allegiance. Christian faith is when you hear the story of Jesus and there wells up within you an answering love. I mean, think of it this way. If, if my children do something for me that I find very precious and rising up in me is a love for them. You get that? If, if somebody ever does a thing for you and it, it, it makes you feel humble and it makes you full of gratitude. That's faith. That's, that's what it is. When you hear the story of Jesus that God loved the world so much that he was so faithful to the world that he took on flesh and he took all the evil into himself like a giant salve on the gaping wound of the world. He sucked out all the poison into himself until it killed him and he did this out of love and out of his commitment to his creation. And when you hear that story and you, within you, you're, I want to love you. I want to know you. I want to be faithful to you. You've been faithful to me when you begin to look with gratitude on Jesus's death and resurrection that's Christian faith and when you begin to rest your weight on him and on these events that's Christian faith and when you do that when you believe in Jesus in that way when you have that kind of faith in him you will get benefits from it personally you will benefit from being born into this new creation, unleashed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Your sins will be forgiven. Your guilt will be removed. You will be justified, put right with God. You will be set free from the power of evil so that you can worship your creator. You will be reconciled to your creator and you will have access to this fresh moral energy that you can draw down on to to press on. And to live the kind of life that God calls us to. Christian faith is key to receiving the benefits of the new creation. Where death will not hold you. Where you can face your death knowing. I'm going to be in the presence of God. Waiting for the new creation when I will get a body again. That this is not, whenever you face your death, you can face it knowing this is not the end of it. This is the benefit. Of it. Why wouldn't you want to be in this kingdom where death doesn't have to be the end? That just like Jesus, you will be raised to an incorruptible life in an incorruptible world. Jesus is claiming the whole creation as his own, and he's going to renew it and restore it the way his body was renewed and restored, and he's going to flood this whole earth, this whole universe with his justice and his love and his beauty, and if you have questions about this, if you're like the disciples, what? That's just crazy talk, or I want to believe that, but it really is hard to believe it. Come on now, Aubrey. You're talking like a madman. This is the stuff of fairy tales. Just let us have the kind of Christian religion that's not so goofy, right? If, if, you, if you are having questions about this, that's awesome. Come and talk to one of the people wearing these fancy little these scars, me or Keith or Martin, our deacons. Talk to somebody you know who does believe it and, and face up to your doubts and press into that. Now, if the first point of Easter is that new creation has begun, a new world that's hard to imagine, and the second point of Easter is that you're all invited into it, I think the third point of Easter is now we've got work to do. 
You see, becoming a Christian is not, I'm okay now. No matter what happens, I'll go to heaven and then get about your daily work. No. Easter is about new creation now in this tired world. This world that is filled with pain and suffering and corruption and abuse and injustice and ugliness and death. That first Easter, Jesus' resurrection, that was the pilot project. And what God did for Jesus that explosive morning is what he intends to do for the whole creation. And so we live in a time between Jesus' resurrection and the final rescue and transformation of the whole world. And in this in-between time, living as Easter people, recipients of the new creation, we have work to do. And our work, the work we are called to, is to bring the life of heaven to birth in actual, physical, earthly reality here and now. That's the third point of Easter. it's, It's that we are called to bring the life of heaven to birth in the actual world we live in. And remember, our best work is always shaped by hope. And genuine Christian hope is rooted in Jesus' resurrection. It's the hope of God's renewal of all things. We've we've talked about this so many times in the past. But this morning, let's just focus once again. A primary area where Christians are called to work. All through the Gospels, you come across this. A primary place that we're supposed to go as Christians to work is with the poor. In fact, when Christianity was moving out past Judaism, moving into the Gentile world, they were all up in arms, the Jews in Jerusalem, about can non-Jews really become Christians? And they wrote them a letter and they said, yes, you can. And they told them just a couple of things. And the last thing they said was, and whatever you do, don't forget this. To be a Christian, last line, remember the poor. It's right there. It's in the gospel. Now, the poor in the Bible, this is a thick term. It means more than where you sit on some economic scale. In the Bible, poor means you do not have the means to help yourself. It's the sick and the lonely. It's the outcast and the forgotten and the powerless. Teenagers in public schools. It's the uncool kid. It's the mistreated. It's the excluded. And in Harrisonburg, there are three groups of people that I think line up with what the Bible says about the poor particularly. One group is the men and women among us from other countries. Whether they are documented or not, no matter what political party you belong to, Documented or undocumented. This is a group of people that are in our city who lack the means to help themselves. A second group of people in our city who don't have the means to secure their own justice are those sitting in our overpopulated jail. And a third group of people are the homeless. And I want you to think of all the mechanisms our media gives us to ignore those three groups to not notice them, and to think that their problem is their problem. But if if the leaders of the church in Jerusalem were writing a letter to us, they would say, incarnation, whatever you do, whatever you build, 
whatever you say, whatever you teach, however you live out the gospel, they would say at the very end, remember the poor. Don't forget that. Don't forget that the poor are at the front and center of what it means to be Easter people, new life people, new creation people. Our work must be for the poor. So look, if your job doesn't bring you near the poor, and where you live doesn't bring you near the poor, then you've got to join some organization in town that does. But either through your work or your house or your civic um, engagements, you have got to move toward those who don't have the means to secure themselves. This is not optional. This is what it means to be an Easter person. These three groups of people right here in Harrisonburg, they live day in and day out with the threat of injustice. And part of the job of the church is to protect the weak and vulnerable and to take up their injustice and to bring it to speech and to help people articulate it. And when they are ready to do so, help them turn it into prayer. And that's when you'll discover suddenly that so many of the Psalms are so relevant. Our work for God in his kingdom must be rooted in prayer, particularly the prayer that comes from the depths of a sorrow-filled heart. That's the work of the kingdom. When your life is breaking you down and all you can say is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then you are now right at the foot of the cross doing the work of the kingdom. But we can't stop with prayer. Because structural evil, institutional evil, injustice, these types of wrong always require more than prayer. They, structural injustices require structural answers. Institutional injustices require institutional answers. So we have to work at those other levels in our daily lives. We've got to work with the whole local community to foster programs for better housing and schools and community facilities, to encourage new job opportunities, to campaign and cajole and work with our local government and councils. Look, if you didn't think Easter meant this, then you've reduced Easter to some pietism that's not about the resurrected body. The Easter is about the resurrected body. It's about new creation breaking into this creation. It's about us going to the vulnerable places as agents of the king. This is what it means to be Easter people. To be Easter people is to refuse to let our religion be abstracted up into some purely sp spiritual realm where we just fly away. Now, so many people in our church are doing this. Our church is filled with people who are following God into the hard places in our community. Our church is filled with people who are going into the jails and the schools and the clinics for unwanted pregnancies and agencies that work with undocumented citizens. You're working in our courts and our hospitals. You're in places of therapy. People in our church are working with handicapped children and with our neighbors and with our children. As we do these things, we have the opportunity, the challenge of living with Jesus in the tense places where the tragic is always present, where our broken world is poised on a precarious fulcrum and it wobbles between glory 
and grotesque, between beauty and brokenness, between grace and tragedy, and Christian faith, Easter faith, real Christian faith, the kind that leads you to experience the depth of God's grace will lead you to experience the depth of suffering in our world. Easter faith is available to those who enter into the broken places. Because the revolution that began on the cross moves forward through the cross. Our suffering is not something that gets in the way of Easter. Our suffering is not something that gets in the way of God's kingdom. When we go for it and it washes back on us and breaks our hearts, that is not an impediment to the work of the kingdom. That is the way the kingdom moves forward. The revolution that began on the cross only moves forward through the cross. Our suffering is the means by which the rescuing love of God is poured into our world. See, we've got to stop looking at the hard moments, the resistance, the brokenness, the the suffering. We've got to stop looking at that as some odd thing. No, that's exactly the, the victory of the cross is the same way the work of the cross moves forward. You see, it is the saints among us who live their faith close to the tottering hinge because it's only by being close enough to see the world's pain that we can ever hope to see God's face in the world. And at the end of the day, I've begun to notice that the people who confuse faith with certainty are the ones who stay as far away from the broken places as possible. But as Easter people, we can face the challenge to our faith that waits us in the tension between faith and hope. Because like the men and women who follow Jesus discovered, suffering and dying is the way the world is changed. The revolution that began on the cross only moves forward when we take up our crosses and we experience our crucifixions. And this is etched into the New Testament at point after point. For example, our gospel read, our reading from the book of Acts. Peter stands up and he pronounces the gospel. And then right away, that's chapter 10, right in chapter 12, the fact that the victory had been won on the cross does not mean in chapter 12 that Herod is not going to kill Jesus' brother, James. But it did mean that Peter was wonderfully rescued from jail. Now, if I was Peter's mother, I would have felt guilty sitting next to James's mother. And if I was James's mother, I would have been confused and felt like I got the short end of that stick. The Bible doesn't give us an explicit interpretation of the strange way that the victory of the cross moves forward. In Acts chapter 16, the fact that the victory had already been won did not mean that Paul and Silas wouldn't be beaten by the authorities in Philippi. But it did mean that when they sang hymns at midnight, the prison doors would be shaken open and by an earthquake and they would find themselves converting the jailer who demands that they come and talk to his family. And then they get a public apology from the authorities who beat them. 
Do you see how all through Acts, the cross moves forward in victories that are both in the suffering and in the releases. And then in Acts chapter 27 and 28, the victory achieved by Jesus did not stop Paul from being shipwrecked. But it did mean that when he got to Rome to announce God as king and Jesus as Lord, he would know that he came with the sin of victory in his nostrils. You see, the God who defeated death through Jesus and rescued Paul from the depths of the ocean would enable him to look at at emperors of this world without flinching. Now, how in the world could Paul do that? How could he keep getting beaten and released from jail, betrayed, beaten by a mob, hobbled down the road 50 miles, gets, gets to Athens, and there he's put up on trial. How in the world does he keep going? How in the world did our foremothers and forefathers keep doing this? I think the secret is in Romans chapter 6, a passage we read at our sunrise service this morning. In Romans chapter 6, Paul explains that someone who has been baptized has already died. They've already been buried. They've already been raised to new life. It happened to Jesus. And what was true of Jesus, Paul says in Romans 6, is true of his people. That's why Martin Luther, the great German reformer, was famous for saying when the chips were down and he was scared and people were trying to kill him and he was barely holding on and he was losing his faith, he was famous for saying when his heart was breaking and he didn't think he could make it, his his self-talk was this, I have been baptized. That was his self-talk. You see, our baptism is our ultimate protection against the power of evil. In our baptism, the Bible tells us we are brought into the protection of Jesus' victory. And that doesn't mean no harm can come to the baptized person or that the baptized person can no longer fall into grievous sin. No, but it does mean that we can go to the hardest places and do the hardest work and our hearts can break And our bodies can break. And as we watch that happen to ourselves, as we see that, we see that the suffering of following Jesus is what brings the victory of Jesus into fresh reality. And that fresh outflowing of that victory emerges. The way of the victory, the cross, is the way the victory of the cross moves forward. Easter is about Jesus, the Jesus who died to exhaust the power of this world's rulers, the Jesus who rose again to be crowned as king over all of heaven and earth. And may God give us grace to live as Easter people, celebrating Jesus's love and joy at his table and making his kingdom and his justice known in this world. Let's pray.